1: That is not the drug problem. That is, in fact, the drug policy problem. I speak tonight for the dignity of man.
0: It may have been sold as a war to end all wars, but the armistice 100 years ago, November eleventh, 1918, actually turned out to be a peace to end all peace. Why did it happen? Did Germany really start the First World War? Was anything actually settled? Was it the right thing for the United States to join the war? Did President Woodrow Wilson help or do harm? As our guest Adam Hochschild reveals, a British baby who was born at exactly 11 a.m. on the Great Day was christened Pax. At the age 21, he would be killed in the next war. Could there have been a better earlier resolution before the U.S. got in, which might have avoided a second world war. Well, my introduction to our guest, Adam Hochschild, was reading his book, King Leopold's Ghost, a story of greed, terror, and Heroism in colonial Africa, which won a J. Anthony Lucas Award in the U.S. and the Duff Cooper Prize in England. Uh, Bury the Chains, Prophets and Rebels in the Fight to Free and Empire Slaves, a history of the British anti-slavery movement, was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the L.A. Times Book Prize. For the body of his work, he's received awards from the Lennon Foundation, the American Historical Association, and the American Academy of Arts and Letters. To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion, 1914-1918, to 1918, published in 2011, was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award and won the Dayton Literary Peace Prize. His books have been translated into 15 languages. Spain in Our Hearts, Americans, and the Spanish Civil War, 1936 to 1939, regular listeners know I talk about that a fair amount, appeared in 2016, and his latest, Lessons from a Dark Time, and other essays in 2018. Hochschild has uh, written... For The New Yorker, Harper's, The Atlantic, The New York Review of Books, Granta, The New York Times Magazine, and other publications. And he was one of the co-founders of Mother Jones Magazine. He's a lecturer at the Graduate School of Journalism at the University of California at Berkeley. Adam Hochschild, thanks so much for being with us on this special recognition of the end of the First World War. Thanks for being with Well, me.
1: thank you, Bert. It's always a pleasure to be here.
0: Well, thank you. Well, the summer of 1914 was a bright, happy, remarkably peaceful time across a Europe which had been free from wars for nearly 50 years, until an assassination of an archduke of the ruling Austro-Hungarian Empire and his wife were so famously uh, assassinated, and that was a fateful trigger. Our guest sums it all up. The war would leave a staggering toll. More than 9 million men killed in combat, another 21 million wounded, many of them missing arms, legs, noses, genitals. Millions of civilians died as well, and of course, the long-range consequences were still worse, for the conflict left Germany in a simmering bitterness that Hitler brilliantly manipulated to gain power and then ignite an even more destructive war and the Holocaust as well. It is impossible to imagine the Second World War happening without the toxic legacy of the first. First question of many. While the losing party Germany took the blame for starting the war, what about the role of others like Russia, which mobilized rather quickly, and how did Austria-Hungary escape the blame? I never could figure that out.
1: Good question, Bert. You know, the question of who to blame for this great tragedy is a very complicated one. Uh, I think on the surface of it, Germany and perhaps particularly Austria-Hungary take the major share of the blame. Germany, after all, did uh, march with millions of troops into France and Belgium with no provocation. Uh, Austria-Hungary really set the ball rolling by after the archduke's assassination issuing this uh, ultimatum to serbia basically the fact that there was an independent nation of serbia was felt by the austro-hungarians to be a tremendous threat because they had many serbs within their own borders and uh, they essentially wanted to wipe serbia off the map because hmm. they felt that it was uh, its very existence was encouraging Uh, ethnic nationalism among the Serbs inside Austria-Hungary. And they used the assassination of the Archduke as an excuse to issue this uh, terrible ultimatum to Serbia, even though it was an an Austro-Hungarian citizen, not a Serbian citizen, who had uh, shot and killed the Archduke and his wife. So at Uh, You know, at one level, I think Germany and Austria-Hungary should take the blame for starting the war. On the other hand, wars often start because everybody involved is eager in some way to fight. Uh, Another country that was particularly eager to go to war was Russia. Yes. uh, Because Russia had been humiliatingly defeated 10 years earlier in the Russo-Japanese War. And the Russians felt at a particular humiliation that they had been so thoroughly beaten in war by an Oriental power. So there were many Russian generals who were eager to uh, you know, avenge this humiliation. And there were longtime bonds between the Russians and Serbia because Serbia was also a Slavic country, also an Eastern Orthodox country. And uh, in the past, uh, Russians had often uh, gone off and volunteered to fight for uh, Serbian independence. So Russia uh, quickly wanted to come to the defense of Serbia, and then things escalated from there. There were people in France who were eager for war because this would give France a chance to recover Alsace and Lorraine, which had been lost to Germany in the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. So there were other countries who were all eager to jump in for their own reasons, even though I think the main blame for initiating it rests on Germany and austria-hungary
0: well England was not exactly an innocent in all this what why might they have wanted war with Germany as well it seems like everybody was eager
1: yeah well England had uh, an understanding with France it was not a formal treaty but uh, over the course of the preceding decade uh, the militaries of the two countries had basically agreed that if one was attacked, the other would come to their defense. And they had even worked out, you know, which British divisions would land where on on the French coast and so forth. And England's motive, essentially, was that they wanted to control the English Channel. And they didn't want a hostile power, namely Germany, uh, you know, controlling uh, that other side of the coastline. So they very quickly came to France's defense using, as an excuse, the fact that uh, Germany had violated Belgian, Belgian neutrality, which had been guaranteed by a treaty that everybody signed on to early in the 19th century. And it's true that Germany did violate Belgian neutrality, but Britain very quickly uh, violated somebody else's neutrality when British troops uh, marched through a corner of China in order to seize a, uh, a German uh, concession in China. So the Belgian neutrality thing was sort of an excuse. I think Britain basically didn't want a, a hostile power controlling the other side of the English Channel.
0: <laughs> well, of course... Uh, Britain wanted to, uh, they were facing some rebellion in uh, that island very close to them in Ireland. And, I, I, you know, the timing of uh, starting a war or being involved in a war with, with Germany uh, helped put that one down for a little while. I wonder how much of a motivation that may have been for for the U.K.
1: It probably helped because Ireland had been restive for a long time feeling itself uh, quite correctly, I think, to be a colony of the English. Yes. And there had been an upsurge of Irish nationalism uh, in early 1914, and uh, you know, both Catholics and Protestants starting militias and arming themselves, and there had been a lot of restiveness in the British Army because many British Army officers were from... Protestant families in Northern Ireland, and they did not like the idea of having to go and disarm Protestant militias, and there had been a big storm about this. And this was the the major subject uh, occupying the, the the British press in the months leading up to the uh, to the start of World War One. But wars do have, unfortunately, this way of distracting. Uh, people's attention from anything else that was going on. So that was probably uh, in some ways an additional motive, as you say.
0: Boy, they didn't have to deal with that. They dodged the Irish bullet for at least a little while. But here we are in 2018. No question the dominant power in Europe is Germany. After years of terrible bloodshed with no real progress, could there have been an earlier armistice leaving Germany with some gains and couldn't that have staved off the restarting of the war in 1939? I think
1: so. You know, it's always fun to replay history the way we would have liked to have it happen. And I would have been very happy to see the warring powers in the First World War agree to make peace almost at any point along the way, the sooner the better, Mm -hmm. because this war was so enormously destructive. You mentioned the statistics at the beginning, nine million military deaths alone, uh, more than double that number of people wounded, uh, uh, millions of civilian deaths, too, depending on how you count them. uh, And the war also allowed a number of things to happen under its cover, so to speak. Would the Armenian genocide have happened without World War I? I'm not sure, because the Turks used the excuse that the Armenians were uh, allied with the invading Russian forces who were trying to come into eastern Turkey. Uh, and much of this might have been avoided had there been an earlier attempt to make, to make peace. So I wish that had happened. Yeah. Uh, it didn't happen. And the result was this tremendous reservoir of bitterness that was left, above all, in Germany. And we can talk more about that in detail, which I think led directly to the Second World War and to the Holocaust as well. Because it's really impossible to imagine either of those things happening without the First World War.
0: Yeah, and people, I actually got my interest in the first world war many years ago i realized yeah i knew a lot about world war Two, but world war one was that just the one before the big one and people don't know about it but it it never really ended in so many ways and affects us so much today you don't you can't really know where we are until you know our history if you just tuned in Bert cohen here the show is keeping democracy alive and our guest today i'm very pleased to have adam hochschild uh and we're talking about. Uh, 100 years since the armistice, the sort of end of the First World War. In his 1916 re-election campaign, American President Woodrow Wilson's slogan was, he kept us out of war. In fact, he met often with the leaders of the deep and countrywide anti-war movement. He met with them regularly, who did not doubt for a moment that Wilson was on their side being against the U.S. getting into the war. What made Wilson flip after the election?
1: I'm not sure it was a complete flip, because even though that was the slogan he ran on, in 1916, you know, before the presidential election campaign, he had already been talking to congressional leaders about the possibility of entering the war. Uh, there were a number of factors involved there. One, of course, this, this happened in early 1917, was that the Germans started sinking American ships. They declared unrestricted submarine warfare, which uh, meant that they they previously, the, U, the U.S. had been doing a big trade with the Allied nations, with Britain and France, uh, huge business with them. But the Germans had been careful not to sink ships uh, carrying the American flag. In early 1917, the Germans declared an end to that policy. They would sink any ship heading for Britain and France, whether it was an American ship or anybody else's. So that caused uh, a lot of anger in this country as American sailors were killed and American ships were were sunk. Then also in early 1917, there was the famous Zimmermann telegram where Mm -hmm. Arthur Zimmermann, the German foreign minister, had sent a very (laughs) ill-advised telegram to his embassy in Mexico, urging the ambassador there to try to persuade Mexico to come in on Germany's side in the war, and saying that if this happened, Mexico, if victorious, would be promised uh, land that it had lost to the U.S. in uh, Texas, New Mexico, and Arizona. And, of course, this angered Americans hugely. Uh, and Zimmerman then dug himself deeper into a hole by acknowledging that he had sent the telegram, which the British had intercepted and decoded. So that created tremendous desire to end the war in this country. That was what was going on in public opinion on the surface. But I think there was something below the surface, which was this: the United States, as I mentioned, had been carrying on huge trade with Britain and France. Uh, Because the U.S. was the world's leading industrial power and manufactured everything, you know, armaments, rifles, artillery pieces, uh, steel, you name it. And by the end of the war, Britain was spending fully half its military budget in the United States. And uh, many people in the American business world feared that the United States would lose all that and American banks would lose the huge loans they had extended to Britain, to France, to Russia, to buy this stuff if Germany won the war. And uh, actually, several years after the war was over, a telegram surfaced that had been sent by Woodrow Wilson's ambassador in London in early 1917 saying, our entering the war may be the only way of saving uh, those loans. Uh, He was afraid at this point that Britain and France would go bankrupt. Mm. So there was strong economic motivation there as well.
0: Hmm. Interesting. And, of course, the Mexicans had uh, had uh, transgressions from the U.S. against them shortly before the First World War. They were angry about that. And the, I mean, the Lusitania, for example, was found to have had a lot of munitions for England, On there, and the British and French were blockading Germany at the time so they couldn't get goods in. So they had, it's not like they were, you know, just uh, without reason, the Germans, on on attacking uh, these ships.
1: Right. You could actually say that de facto the United States had been in the war from the beginning in this economic sense. Uh, The United States was officially neutral, and American business was. Free to do business with Germany as well, as but do. there was virtually none of it because the R- Britain's Royal Navy had a very tight blockade around Germany, and no ships could get through right
0: so they were angry what, what, uh, there's so much not known about American history and the First World War. How should history treat fighting Bob La Follette? A lot of people haven't heard of him,
1: yeah. Mm-hmm. I think he was a good guy. I really do. He was a a strong voice for reigning in corporate power. Uh, He was a strong voice for all kinds of reforms. And let's remember, he came from the state of Wisconsin, uh, not a state that's been on the forefront of progressive reforms in the last few years, unfortunately. But there are a lot of people there who still uh, were inspired by the legacy of uh, La Follette. Uh, He was also a strong opponent of of the U.S. entering the war and was one of only six senators who voted against the declaration of war. Uh, And when Woodrow Wilson went and addressed a joint session of Congress uh, calling for war, uh, La Follette uh, stood there with his arms crossed uh, chewing gum and did not applaud. And I honor him for that.
0: Oh, indeed. And he paid quite a heavy price for it as well. Senator Bob LaFollette, I guess you how you pronounce it. Now, had the U.S. not entered the war, and some people say, well, why talk about the what-ifs? Well, because it's fun, actually. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> how likely do you think it would have ended earlier and with a more stable and lasting peace had the U.S. not gotten in in 1917?
1: You know, I don't think it would have ended earlier. I think it would have dragged on longer. I think Britain and France probably would have eventually won uh, because together they had more military manpower and combined they had larger war industries. Uh, but I think it might have dragged on another year or two. And indeed, there was a time when the Allied High Command was planning for the war to go on, you know, till 1919 or 1920. Hmm. And I think the consequences would have been uh, just as bad. I, ca- I can't imagine it ending sooner if the U.S. hadn't gotten involved. I think the the U.S. getting involved, you know, by Armistice Day, there were 2 million American soldiers in France. And that really... Provided the, the crucial difference that allowed the Allied forces to advance substantially in the last four or five months of the war, and, and led the Germans to sue for peace.
0: Well, what if what if the Germany if it had been more of a stalemate and Germany uh, might have sort of won? Might that not have curtailed Part Two, the Second World War? It's possible.
1: It's possible uh, because I think. One of the you know, the 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 most disastrous consequences of the war were, of course, Germany uh, was defeated. Uh, and uh, the bitterness that that left, the families of the one point eight million German soldiers who were killed felt they had died in vain. Uh, and Hitler was able to play upon that bitterness uh, so cleverly to, you know, First of all, to blame Jews for the defeat, Jews, pacifists, communists, you know, we were almost winning right up until the end, and indeed the right. uh, the German population had no idea that Germany was militarily losing the war in those final months. So the terms of the armistice, which was basically a German surrender, took them completely by surprise yeah. and really paved the ground for Hitler to say, you know, we were betrayed, we were stabbed in the back, and it's the fault of the Jews and the pacifists and the communists. Uh, and I think that's what led to his election, led to the fury that he was able to focus on the Jews, and that led to the Holocaust, and led to the desire for so many people to go along and starting a second war to avenge the consequences of, of the first. If, as you say... Germany had won the First World War, that wouldn't have happened. On the other hand, might there have been an equivalent bitterness and sense of betrayal uh, in France and in Britain? Uh, You know, it's not easy for any country to be defeated in war, and demagogues often arise uh, after situations like that. So, Possibly the bitterness would have been located elsewhere in France. I don't know.
0: Well, saving face is always so important. Who You know, who cares how many yeah. lives and limbs are lost? It's important to save face. Uh, see Vietnam and Lyndon Johnson. Uh, anyway, uh, propaganda came of age in the First World War, first with the British Wellington House greatly exaggerating German atrocities in Belgium, followed by the Creel Committee here in the U.S., funded by taxpayer dollars. Belgium was painted as a helpless victim. But you know a little bit about Belgium. The entire continent of Africa was in play between Britain, Germany, France, and Belgium, Uh, the brutality of which you write about in King Leopold's Ghost. Uh, And as I look at a map of Africa at the time, virtually all of it was owned by these European powers. It was hardly a war to make the world safe for democracy, I think, given the lack of democracy by the empires over their subjects. So did Britain have a real politic reason for depend, uh, for defending Belgium? I think
1: the real politic re- reason I referred to earlier is they, they wanted a friendly power occupying the other side of the English Channel. And it was kind of hypocritical to call this a war for democracy because the European powers had all, you know, as you say, divided up the continent of Africa among themselves, uh, and often in extremely brutal ways. Uh, in uh, Belgian territory in Africa, German territory, French territory, wherever there was wild rubber growing, mm-hmm. there was a huge death rate as all these colonial powers mobilized large forces of forced laborers to gather uh, this rubber and feed the world, rubber boom. And that's what I wrote about in in King Leopold's Ghost. So it was kind of hypocritical to (laughs) call this a war to defend democracy. Uh, Germany, after all, was something of a democracy. Uh, There was an elected legislature in which the socialists had a good deal of power. Uh, The Kaiser had power as well. Uh, But, you know, it wasn't a pure democracy. But, uh, you know, there was no democracy at all when it came to Colonial territories, whether in Africa or in Asia, where uh, Britain and France had substantial holdings and Germany had some small colonies as well.
0: Which brings up uh, something that, on the face of it, wouldn't seem related at all Vietnam. Ho Chi Minh, during uh, the war, left his waitering job. He was working as a waiter in New York City to go. De Versailles to argue for self-determination. After all, uh, uh, Wilson talked about self-determination as one of his important 14 points. Like so many non-imperial powers, Ho Chi Minh was rebuffed. So how did the settlement of the war, leaving all but a few nations without Wilson's vaunted right to determination, affect not only Vietnam but the Eastern Bloc nations as a result of the participants in control of the Versailles Treaty Did self-determination only apply to the victors? And what about the fate of those countries left out? Well,
1: self-determination is a noble thing to say. But in fact, you know, the victorious powers at Europe really divided up the cake as Mm -hmm. they wanted to divide divide it. You can say there was a certain amount of self-determination in Europe in that Uh, peoples who had not been independent before uh, got their own states. You know, Poland came into being, and there had been a Polish nationalist movement uh, for well over a century. And what today is Poland had been previously divided up among Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Russia. So there was some self-determination there, and uh, Czechoslovakia as well. Um, But self-determination didn't apply at all when it came to other parts of the world, because in Africa, the colonies remained in place, and the allied countries basically divided up Germany's colonies among themselves. Uh, Same thing in Asia, and of course in Vietnam and the rest of Southeast Asia that was essentially a French colony. Uh, French Indochina remained in place. What's interesting to see, though, is that the experience of the First World War gave something of a boost to the independence movements in many of these colonies, in the British West Indies, in certain British territories in Africa, um, uh, in India. Why? Because soldiers had been recruited from all of these places, in some cases brought all the way to Europe to fight or to work as labor troops, uh, you know, loading and unloading ships and that sort of thing. Many of them had been killed. And then at the end of the war, they were sent home and began to think, hey, wait a minute, we've been risking our lives and sometimes seeing our fellow soldiers killed for the sake of uh, the mother country, Britain, France, or whatever. And now we're back back home being second-class citizens again. Mm. So a number of the independence leaders uh, in the the anti-colonial movements that began rising in the 1920s, everywhere from Jamaica to India to Nyasaland in Africa, were people who had been soldiers during the war.
0: Interesting. And the the British (laughs) didn't treat their uh, ANZUS partners all that well during the war either. Uh, Austria, New Zealand uh, support groups uh, were sent in before the British guys because they were of less values, so it seems. And we we talk about the effects uh, on people across the world. The Middle East, we mentioned the uh, Armenian genocide uh, by the Turks. So fascinating to me. It's like a, a a less looked-at theater of the war. But in what ways is the First World War possibly responsible for at least part of the mess the Middle East is today?
1: Well, basically, at the end of the war, by the time the war ended, the victorious powers, uh, who really had needed no convincing of this to begin with, were ever more aware of the value of the vast lake of oil underneath uh, so much of the Middle East. And they basically divided that territory up into spheres of influence for themselves, uh, mainly between Britain and France. Uh, several different uh, previously separate political entities were cobbled together into the nation of Iraq. Yes, uh, And basically Britain and France wanted to make sure that their supply of oil from that part of the world would remain guaranteed. Because around the time of the First World War, a little before it, their navies and ships had basically shifted from burning coal to burning oil. And industry uh, needed oil for all sorts of things. There was a tremendous growth in motor vehicles. So oil became essential, and controlling the part of the world where the oil came from became essential.
0: And I saw a recent video from ISIS where they triumphantly bulldozed through the sykes Pico line, which was an arbitrary line drawn up by, I believe, uh, mid-level bureaucrats that they didn't ask the local people how they felt about it. So it still goes on. There was still a lot of anger related to the First World War. Bert Cohen here, if you just tuned in. Our guest today, I'm very pleased to have Adam Hochschild, author of To End All Wars, a story of loyalty and rebellion, 1914 to 1918, as we come up on the 100th anniversary of the armistice of the First World War. Now, we talked a little bit about propaganda. Many innocent people were hurt by the propaganda machine in, well, England and America. Freedoms were curtailed, hyphenated Americans were harassed and beaten, And it did turn Americans from generally opposing the war to rabid support for the adventure. What can be said about the long-term lessons and power of such propaganda? What's the lasting effect of what lessons may have been learned then?
1: Well, you know, for me, it's a sort of a scary lesson about the power of martial fervor, the emotions that get unleashed when a society goes to war. Keep in mind also that this was a United States in considerable turmoil because basically from for the decade that started about 1990, uh, 1909, there was tremendous labor strife in the United States. Uh, hundreds of thousands of workers on strike each year, people being killed as strikes were suppressed. The National Guard kept being called out. Uh... uh this, this was a period of tremendous labor strife, some of it led by the very militant uh, Wobblies, the IWW, the Industrial Workers of the World, other unions as well. You know, uh, more than 30 people killed when a miners' strike was put down in Colorado in 1914. And in an atmosphere like this, employers and right-wing groups really welcomed the war as an excuse to crack down on labor organizing and they took it and used it with tremendous uh, fury uh... the three-year period that began when the united states entered the war in the spring of nineteen seventeen i think is the most the, the period of the strongest repression in american life usually we think about mccarthyism as being that period but i think this earlier time it was really more extreme uh, two things happened. One was that the United States entered the war and then in the same year came the Russian Revolution, which was a huge shock to the you know established order of things uh, everywhere. And you know, a lot of people were afraid that that spirit could uh, spread to the United States. So there was tremendous repression. First of all, censorship, uh, more than, you know, in the, in the name of supporting the war effort, the U.S. imposed a kind of press censorship the likes of which we had never seen before and have not seen since, at least not yet. <laughs> uh, more than 75 publications either were shut down completely or had issues banned from the mail. This was all under the authority of the Postmaster General, uh, <coughs> who was a quite conservative Texan, uh, Albert Sidney Burleson, first Texan to be in a cabinet and when he didn't like what a publication said he shut it down. Uh, The Masses which was a magazine published in New York that one of the liveliest journals this country has ever seen was basically forced out of business. Uh, They were also terribly scared of foreign language newspapers and magazines of which there were a lot at that time because there were so many recent immigrants uh, who didn't read English And they made a rule that any foreign language publication containing any articles containing statements about the war or about the allied countries or anything remotely relating to the war had to be presented. English translations of these had to be presented to the censors before they could be published. And that was a ruinous expense, which, of course, in effect, shut down many of these publications. And then there were huge numbers of arrests. Yes. Uh, uh, people like Emma Goldman were deported from the United States. Some 3,000 people, f- foreign, using the excuse that they had been foreign-born and never properly naturalized, uh, they were deported overseas. Uh, hundreds of people were sent to jail for resisting the draft. The Palmer Raids in 1919-1920 mm-hmm. under Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer rounded up thousands of radicals uh, and put them in jail. All of this was in the name of first suppressing opposition to the war and then suppressing Bolshevism, uh, which they were afraid would spread to the U.S. So, you know, the war led to tremendous repression this way.
0: And one, I have to see that not exactly parallels, but uh, interesting lessons that have been taken away, you know, blaming Immigrants, the other, and how you know you can use that as you say, martial uh, uh, energy to uh, to clamp down on the other people, and uh, you know it's very convenient for centralizing and increasing uh, the power of of the military, i guess and the, and the right wing as well, and some of it certainly still goes on today
1: It sure does. Uh,
0: if you just tuned in, Bert Cohen here. The show is Keeping Democracy Alive. And believe me, folks, we need your participation to do that. Uh, our guest today is Adam Hochschild. And we're talking about the end of the First World War, which did it ever really end? I don't know. The German government at Versailles that was in that railway carriage, that was, that was not the same people... It wasn't the same German government that was judged to have started the war. As you write, it was no longer clear what sort of government the German delegates in the railway carriage were representing. My sense is they at least tried to be a republic. That was. It was not the defeated party that was there. It was some other government. Talk about this. Right. Piece.
1: So we're talking not about Versailles, but about the armistice, the, the negotiations oh, right. le- leading up to the, the signing of the, the peace November 11th, uh, My
0: 1918,
1: which took effect the 11th day, the 11th hour of the 11th day right. of the 11th month. Um, here was what happened there. Basically, by uh, the fall of 1918, the German Army's high, high command realized they had lost the war. They realized with these two million American troops in France, you know, they had no hope of prevailing over the Allies, and they had steadily lost ground uh, since been retreating since midsummer. Uh, although they had really managed propaganda on the front, on the home front, so that any retreat was just treated as a sort of temporary thing, and you know, victory was still imminent. So the population back home had no idea how disastrous the military situation was. So the German Army High Command uh, uh, proposed peace talks, but they made sure to maneuver into power a socialist government in Berlin, which would take the blame for a peace treaty that they knew would be humiliating to Germany. And then when they actually sent the peace delegation to talk to the Allies, which was a very uh, strange, colorful affair. They had, there, there had been radio communication between the, the armies on both sides, and they agreed that there was one small section of the front where there was actually a passable road that crossed the front lines, and they agreed to have a temporary ceasefire in this one sector. And uh, the night of November seventh, uh, 1918, three automobiles with their headlights on, carrying the German delegates across that road with a bugler uh, standing on the running board blowing the ceasefire call. And then they were uh, met on the French side, and the German delegates were put into a train and brought to uh, a clearing in a forest where there was another train where Marshal Ferdinand Foch, the mm. Allied commander-in-chief, the French army leader, was. And he basically dictated the peace terms to them because the Allies had the upper hand. And the Allies essentially demanded and received a German surrender. Meanwhile, Germany was collapsing. Yes, uh, And, you know, they had raised the red flag over the Kaiser's palace in Berlin. The Kaiser had gone to uh, German army headquarters on the Western Front, but when he was there, he found that the Soviet, the, the soldiers were refusing to salute their officers and were forming soldiers' councils, or Soviets, as they were called mm-hmm. on the Russian model. And uh, he fled across the border to neutral Holland. So the, the Germany was essentially collapsing from within. But the Army High Command wanted to make sure it was a socialist government which took the blame for this humiliating ah, peace. No kidding and they did not even send a senior general to these negotiations. Uh, the Allies demanded, however, that the German Army High Command agree to their peace terms, and they did. And that's when uh, the war finally came to an end. Although there was a peculiar twist to it, because the actual armistice agreement was signed just after 5 a.m. on November eleventh, uh, 1918, But it didn't take effect until 11 a.m. And in those last six hours, the Allies continued attacking. Thousands of men were killed. Thousands more were wounded for no purpose whatever, even though generals on both sides knew that the war was scheduled to end at 11 a.m. and that one of the terms was that the German soldiers had to immediately evacuate the territory they occupied. So... Men were killed, Americans, French, British, colonial troops in seizing ground that they knew the Germans were going to evacuate uh, a matter of of, of hours later. Insane.
0: Ah, absolutely insane, the insanity of war. Well, before I I, I got to uh, get to a question about the manly glory of war, I did want to ask about, you mentioned how after a time, Sometimes troops uh, refused to salute. And these people from, you know, working people uh, at a time where, you know, the, the Soviet Union was coming into existence and, and Marxism was a real thing that a lot of the imperial countries uh, were very much afraid of. I, I know that, I mean, most people, a lot of people know about the Christmas truce of 1914, where two sides got up and allegedly played soccer together and you know had greetings with each other, I read a book called *Poilu* about uh, uh, an average French guy who was a wine barrel maker, and he talked about his experiences in the trenches. And it was at one point, after just sitting there, one trench against another, after a long time, he had become sort of friends with a guy. In the German trench, and it wasn't that uncommon. And the story goes that uh, at, at one point, when the when the German guy, after they had been, you know, friends, uh, put his head up when a French commander was there, and just shot him dead. Uh, and I wonder about mutinies. You know why there must have been great fear of mutinies. I know that the commanders in England and places like that came down really hard on any mutineers. Was it? the sense of nationalism that that really kept down any real... I mean, there were some mutinies in France. I, I'm a little surprised there wasn't more. Why not?
1: I'm kind of surprised there wasn't more also, but we can't forget what powerful socializing and training institutions armies are. You know, over the centuries, they have learned how to... Train soldiers to obey orders in all circumstances. To feel that they're letting down their fellow soldiers if they don't obey orders. Uh, right. To not question the orders given to them. And you know, in in several months of training, an effective army can train a soldier that way. Nonetheless, there were some mutinies in the in the First World War. The the, the biggest, really, among the French army in 1917, where uh, tens of thousands of soldiers essentially refused to attack. Uh, the mutiny broke out after a disastrous series of attacks where 30,000 French soldiers were killed, Whoa. as so often in the First World War, gaining virtually no ground in the process. And as word of this spread through the army, thousands more soldiers, this affected many, many divisions, simply refused orders to attack. They didn't abandon their trenches because they were, you know, their country was under attack and and they didn't want the Germans occupying still more of France, but they refused orders to attack. This was kept quiet. Of course, there was no mention of this in the news media, Uh, the public really didn't realize what was going on. The Germans never found out what was going on. The French army disciplined these folks pretty harsh, harshly, oh, yeah. and that mutiny was suppressed. The place where there really was a much greater degree of mutiny among the soldiers was Russia, because the uh, totally inept and corrupt administration of Tsar Nicholas II uh, was uh, not a He did not field a very effective military force. Mm. Millions of Russian soldiers were wounded and killed. And over the course of the year 1917, the British military uh, attaché in Russia at the time estimated a million Russian soldiers simply left their trenches and walked home. And uh, so the Russian military essentially collapsed as a as a force and when the bolsheviks took power of course it was on the was with the promise of bringing an end to the, the war but they couldn't have continued the war even if they'd wanted to yeah. because the army was was no longer willing to fight
0: fascinating now i to get to the uh, there's that that famous poem dulce and decorum it is fitting and proper to die for one's country and how that's a lie what about the manly glory of war I, people, I, I've, I've seen stories about in England when the war was getting going, these these guys, these young youngsters, teenagers who desperately wanted some adventure to get out of their horrible existence. and, and one even allegedly uh, killed himself when he was rejected for the war. It was this manly glory of war. How, what, how, what was it like before the war and after the war? that, that whole concept and, and uh, you know feeling. Well, you know, this is something that
1: one sees in many societies. I think there is, you know, for centuries, for millennia, there's been an idea that one of the ways you prove your manhood is by risking your life for your country in battle. And this is an ancient idea, a powerful idea, ultimately, I think, a very pernicious idea. Because what usually goes along with that is that you don't question what the leaders of your country say is necessary to do. And we know all too well, you know, here in the United States, having fought uh, a number of wars from, you know, Vietnam to Iraq that in retrospect seem pretty senseless mm-hmm. and not worth spending one's life in, mm-hmm. uh, that all too often wars can be fought for. Uh, worthless purposes or wars are fought to solve a problem that diplomacy might have been able to solve better. But it's a pretty deep uh, idea that's been there since the time of the ancient Greeks that this is almost a definition of manhood. Mm -hmm. And I'm surprised looking at American history at this time how quickly and easily that took hold in the United States because here's the United States on the other side of the ocean from this terrible inferno in Europe. We were not attacked. Uh, and yet, the moment the U.S. entered the war, all over the place, this military fervor broke out. You know, on the day that, the, the first day when they announced the draft uh, and that American soldiers were required to report for, for duty, you know, 10 million young men showed up at the draft boards that had been established uh, and there were all these vigilante organizations, which immediately oh, right. began, you know, beating up people who were arguing for peace or who refused the draft. Um, there's a there's a lot of that fervor that's there that can be unleashed at any time, and it's something dangerous, I think.
0: Oh, very dangerous, and of course, a lot of the uh, soldiers who were wounded. I mean, there were some terrible, terrible uh, wounds to people's faces. And they were not exactly treated as heroes. There was a big surprise about that. The guys were oftentimes rejected. Nobody wanted to pay attention to them. And they were expecting to be treated as heroes. And yeah. the the young Harry Truman, uh, you you point this out in your essay, your recent essay, Captain Harry Truman, writing to his fiancée Bess Wallace after she saw a downed and wounded German aviator robbed of his boots by an American offer, officer, she said, uh, and I guess this was uh, Truman saying, Harry Truman, I heard a Frenchman remark that Germany was fighting for territory, England for the sea, France for patriotism, and Americans for souvenirs. <laughs> what did yeah. that mean? And how how was America changed after this First World War?
1: Well, I'm not sure the war changed America exactly. Um uh, Because for us, it was a much less overwhelming experience than it was for the European countries. Uh, In terms of numbers, although there were uh, 100,000 American military deaths in the First World War, as a proportion of the country's population and as absolute numbers, that was far, far, far less than what had been experienced by France, you know, more than 1.3 million deaths in a country with a smaller population. Uh, Britain, uh, well over 700,000 deaths, again in a country with a smaller population. Germany, 1.8 million deaths. Mm. Uh, so it didn't. It wasn't quite the trauma that uh, it was for the European countries, especially since the fighting did not take place on American soil. But I think it greatly changed the American place in the world, because when the war began, you could say really that Britain was the financial uh, capital of the world. It had the largest navy. It had the largest colonial empire. Uh, France was doing quite well. Germany was doing quite well. By the end of the war, uh, all these countries, even the, the allies who were supposedly victorious, were deeply, deeply in debt. Their economies were stretched to the limit. Uh, The United States had become the world's creditor, essentially, because of the huge amounts of money it had loaned, primarily to Britain and France, to buy war material. And so the war greatly enhanced the American place in the world.
0: Yeah, so it seems. So it seems. And we've been the big guys on the block ever since. Well, you asked the big question uh, in your essay, can we really say the war was won? From everything I've read about the Great War, the armistice did, in fact, happen. The shooting stopped in the places it had been. I'm not sure the war really ended. Can we re- To ask your question, can we really say the war was won?
1: Was it Well, ended? I think in some ways you can say almost no war is won. Uh, and certainly this one was, was, was the case, because if you add together the number of deaths that Britain and France and the United States experienced, for example, uh, they were far greater than the number of deaths that uh, Germany experienced. And, uh, you know, the Winston Churchill declared that the war had left what he called a crippled, broken world. And I think that was really uh, the case. And as we come up on the 100th anniversary of the armistice, one of the things I think it's important to, to remember is that this war was not just a conflict between the two sides, you know, the central powers, Germany and Austria-Hungary, and their allies on one side, and the allied powers, Britain and France, and their allies on the other. It was not just that conflict. It was also within each of the countries, involved, there was a conflict between people who thought the war was something uh, great and glorious and noble and necessary, and people who at the time recognized it as absolute madness, and who refused to fight, or who supported those who refused to fight. And as we come up on this anniversary, I really want to see those people Uh, remembered and honored. Uh, Here in the United States, for example, the great labor leader uh, Eugene B. Debs spoke out strongly against the war after the U.S. entered it. And for that, he was sent to prison. And he was still in prison in November 1920 when he received nearly a million votes for president on the Socialist Party ticket. Uh, And there were equivalent figures in Germany Uh, in France, in Britain, in all of the other countries. And I I really want to see us remember these folks in this anniversary season.
0: Yeah, and there were some great women in particular in England who had opposed the war and paid a very heavy price for it. There was a lot of, it seems to me that before 1917, it seemed pretty clear the majority of Americans didn't want to get in the war. And there was a lot of resistance, not just from people we would call left today, uh, but from average people from middle America uh, were, were against the war. And now uh, it's, uh, it seems to be uh, more glorified yet again. We, we choose not to learn the lessons. It's amazing to me how you know history, there's so many lessons to learn, but they need to be erased specifically so people don't learn from it, so the powers that be can have their way. Well, Thank you so much for being with us uh, at this uh, 100th anniversary of the Armistice of the First World War. The book that, uh, that our guest Adam Hochschild wrote is uh, To End All Wars, A Story of Loyalty and Rebellion 1914 to 1918. And I would uh, recommend anything uh, Adam Hochschild has written. I don't know if you have any particular website you can point people to.
1: I don't have a website. Although ah, yes, if you no. Google me, you'll find my page at the Graduate School of Journalism at Berkeley, where I teach, and all the books are written are, are listed there. Oh, great! So
0: well, let's hope. Thank you so much. Very interesting stuff, and uh, I, I would hope we could learn some lessons from it. Thanks.
1: Good. Well, thank you, Bert. It's always a pleasure. We'll do
0: it again. And thank we you. We so
1: do hard. need to keep democracy alive. That's <sighs> for sure. It's
0: a heavy lift. We need everybody involved. Thank you.